0: All right. So this uh, this is the only session that I don't have a paper for. Uh, if some of you who have been following along with those, uh, there's just uh, just PowerPoint for this. Uh, this was a particular topic uh, that that uh, Robbie suggested might be helpful, uh, but it actually ties in directly with several of the things that we've been talking about last session. Ties in directly with that. Um, as well as some of the other sessions as well. And that is how to help our congregations sing. Colossians 3, uh, 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with Thankfulness in your hearts to God, and of course, we have the parallel passage in ephesians five nineteen as well This is a biblical command: we are to be singing, we are to be uh, uh, leading our congregations in singing uh, as we as I talked about uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, this is not supposed to be worshipers on the stage worshiping on behalf of the people. This is supposed to be the congregations being involved in singing, and so it's it 's a very natural question: How do we encourage this? Uh, in some in some ways, it's perhaps because of everything we talked about in the last session becoming a more challenging question. You know, how 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 do we encourage the people in our congregation to sing when when they're uh, they're being so shaped and influenced by the pop culture around them, and when the churches all around us are doing things a certain way? How how can we encourage uh, our congregation to sing? Uh, so, I want to kind of tackle this question. I want to begin with what I think is. Uh, the the typical contemporary answer to this question. There's a certain way that that I think most people assume is the correct answer, which influences then the kinds of songs that are chosen. And what I want to show you is that actually this is this is not the correct answer. It actually discourages congregational singing. In fact, it 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 uh, it cultivates the kind of sacerdotalism that we talked about yesterday. Uh, and the kind of congregational sing along rather than truly congregational singing, but I would say if you know most people today when answering when attempting to answer this question how what will help congregations sing?" the typical answer is something like this: we want we need songs that are simple and engaging, simple so that people can sing them. That seems to make sense. So we want songs that have really simple melodies, uh, really simple harmony. Again, the goal is we want as many people to be able to participate as possible. And then we want them to be able to enjoy it, so they've got to be things that are engaging and that create energy and excitement. And that really ties into a little bit what we talked about in the last session with the sort of expectation of a need for excitement in the service in order for people to be engaged. I'm going to suggest, though, that that is the wrong solution, and here's why. If our goal is simplicity, simplicity in melody and simplicity in harmony in particular, what we end up with is actually pretty boring songs. You know, so just... To use a uh, silly example, if we had a song that just repeats the same pitch over and over again, that's pretty simple, and anybody can join in. I love God, I love God, I really love God. You you probably all can pick that up pretty quickly, right? So so it, it's it's it is uh, it's accessible, right? It, it's it's uh, it's satisfying that requirement, but it's that's not engaging. So, really simple melodies, and in particular, really simple harmony, is inherently boring. nobody 's going to want to sing it. The problem is again, I think this is this is a common answer that 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 many who are writing music for modern worship uh are trying to do they they have very, very simple melodies, very, very simplistic harmony. So in and of itself, you just take the melody by itself, it's very, very boring. The only way to make it engaging is by doing things musically that actually discourage congregational singing. So I'll show you some examples of that uh, here in a moment. Uh, And what's what's interesting about this, and again, this connects with what we just talked about, this is exactly what pop music is. If you take the typical pop music, pop song on the radio and you strip everything away but just the melody and the harmony nobody's going to listen to it because it's really really boring it's so simplistic that it's just it's very boring uh there, there's a one of my all-time favorite book titles by john that the title is doing our own thing the denigration of language and music and why we should like care <laughs> uh McQuarters Mc, not he's a he's a cultural critic he's not a he's not a believer uh, he's a, he's an African American cultural critic who, who just sort of looks at pop culture and and he in this book shows both the parallels of the denigration of language I mean Alan mentioned this earlier that you know we use ma- like 52 words and that's it and I even just said like. Um, you know, so the, the the English language has over time become more and more and more and more simplistic, and 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 there's very much parallels in music, and so he kind of shows the shift in American popular culture uh, along these lines. And here's what he says: He says, "I have claimed, this is in his book, page one ninety eight. I have claimed that the United States has undergone as uh, as shift in its relationship of self-expression that has." had an effect beyond anything traceable to education or larger currents of intellectual history. The mu- and so here's here's what has happened. The musical sensibility of most Americans of boomer age and younger parallels their sense of language, preferring the visceral, spontaneous, and elementary over the objective, planned, and elaborated. So so here's the point, we've, we've, we've dumbed down the language, and we've dumbed down the basic musical elements, melody and harmony, and instead, what most modern Eric, Americans, McCorder is arguing, what we want, what we think is really engaging, to put it in the language we just used, I mean, he says visceral, spontaneous, and elementary, in other words, music that targets the passions. That's engaging. But, he, but he said, he's, he's arguing this is a change. He says in earlier America, so he's now talking about, about the shift in music. In earlier America, the, tune, the two main elements the listener picked up in their ears were melody and harmony. So in other words, he's saying, he's saying more older traditional music had really rich melodies and really rich harmonies you think of old like old american folk music or even to a certain degree early pop music or classical music rich rich melody rich harmony that's it's it's stuff you could sing while you're walking down the sidewalk cuz it's just it's just really beautiful melodies beautiful harmony today however he says the american typically listens mainly for two things rhythm and the vernacular authenticity of the singer's vocal tone certainly we haven't tossed out melody or harmony altogether we can certainly do without them if the beat is fine enough so a lot of pop music today the melody is really boring the lyrics i mean if you read them they don't say anything that's not what attracts people the harmony if you analyze it from a from a from a harmonic standpoint musically uh, you know, some of you may know music, some of you don't. But, but um, you know, if you if you harmonize the chord progressions or the the numbers of of, of chords that are used in a typical pop song. They're very, very low, whereas in the past, a lot more chords were used, different inversions of the chords, different creative progressions of, of the chords, very interesting harmonic language. Today, most what, what, this is what McCorder is, is pointing out, and, and again, he's an unbeliever. I, I, I say that to point out he doesn't have an ax to grind. He's not trying to make any sort of theological argument. He's just, he's just analyzing the culture. He's saying music in the past had really rich melody and harmony. Today in, it has very boring melodies, very uh simplistic elementary harmony. Instead, what 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 is really engaging is the rhythm, which inherently targets the more visceral visceral responses and the what he calls the vernacular authenticity of the singer's vocal tone, kind of you know, that breathy. Uh, very mic close to the mouth kind of sound. He says most most pop music, most pop today, most pop music today, is driven less by what the composer writes down than the performer taking raw materials and fashioning it into an individually charismatic performance. In the same way, speech is immediate and personal when uttered, but loses its power when transcribed word for word on paper. I mean, that's why you, you read the lyrics of most pop songs, and you're like, you read it. It's not meant to be read. That's the point, right? It's meant to be communicated by this engaging, dynamic, charismatic performance. Denuded of its situational context and the nuances that intonation conveys. New pop music is spoken music. Old pop was much more written. Even the early pop music, or even before that, traditional folk music or or, or classical music was written down, was, was, was musically, harmonically, and textually rich. He's pointing out pop music as transition. And I'm, I'm pointing this out because this is, this is paralleled in Christian music. I'll make that point here in a moment. He says, because a culture busy getting down, right, just into the rhythm, no longer required real songs, America ate this music up such that today a good two generations have grown up with a musical sensibility based on beat and shaggy vocal passion. That is, whatever residual responses one has to melody and harmony take away the beat and the cool voice and we lose interest, while music based entirely on melody and harmony appeals only to a few. Okay, so you understand what he's saying? Older music, and it's really not old versus new, but it is in terms of just what has happened. But He's not saying old is inherently better than new. He's just saying this is what has happened over time. Traditional folk music, traditional forms of music had really rich melody and harmony and lyrics, and that is what created interest. Modern pop music is more about the driving rhythm, which is more immediate, more visceral. The melodies, the lyrics, and the harmony is actually pretty vapid. And that parallels very much with what, ha- what it, what it, with what has happened in Christian music, partially because Christians have just sort of copied along with what's happened in the, in, the sec- in the secular pop culture, but partially because of that initial answer to the question, how can we get people engaged? And the answer was to do the same thing with Christian music as the pop artist did with the pop music. We grossly simp- simplify the lyrics. We grossly simplify the melodies. We grossly simplify the harmonies. I'm going to show you some examples of this just in a a moment. So that, again, ostensibly with a good objective, we want to make sure everybody can sing it. If it's too complicated, people are not going to be able to sing it. Okay, that makes sense at its face. But then it's boring, so what do we got to do? Well, let's also follow pop culture in this. To make it engaging, we need to make it visceral. We emphasize the rhythm, the rhythmic drive, and the rhythmic complexity. And then we emphasize the performance. I mean, modern pop music has to be performed with a professional with a professional band with, with 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 the technology, you know this relates to what Lim and Ruth point out with contemporary music. They say contemporary music unplugged is not itself. You take away the amp, you take away the electronic instruments and all of that, and it's 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 not engaging anymore it's very, very boring i mean you you apply what I like to call the catacomb test, in other words, can you do this in the, could you do this in the first century in the catacombs? No, because you wouldn't want to sing this stuff. It's not interesting unless it's amped up with the driving rhythm and the, the 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 authentic, passionate vocal performance. Right? That's what makes it really, 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 really engaging. The problem is, as I pointed out a moment ago, those things actually make it inherently non-congregational. Let me show you. So. On the one hand, you have melodic and harmonic interest. That's what McWhorter is pointing out used to be true of traditional music. And this is this is true of traditional hymnody. There is a melodic... Again, I'm going to show you specific examples of this in a moment. There's, but there's a, there's, a, there's a melodic and harmonic interest in the music. As that wanes, as that is diminished, to where now we have very simplistic melody and very simplistic harmonies, it's boring. So what do we got to do to make it interesting? We have to increase the rhythmic complexity. That this is what has happened in modern pop music, and this is what has happened in a lot of contemporary music. Now let me show you this. I'm going to show you some examples, and I I think you'll probably recognize most of these hymns. Some examples of what we might consider traditional hymnody, That has a lot of textual interest, a lot of uh, um, melodic interest, and a lot of harmonic interest. For instance, a hymn like Holy, Holy, Holy. If If you were to musically analyze this hymn, what you would find is actually a lot of complexity in the harmony. I have a colleague at Southwestern Seminary who's a music theory professor, and he's over the last several years now done a, a, an extensive study of this. What he's doing is he's taking the top fifty, what you might call traditional hymns, based on studies that have shown what are the most common hymns sung by Christians, you know, um, throughout the you know th- throughout the evangelical church, and then the top fifty contemporary worship songs based on all the all the statistics, and he's analyzed them from a music theory perspective, melodically, harmonically, rhythmically, and actually his latest now, what he's doing is, is analyzing the texts as well, theologically. And, and what, he, what he's showing objectively is that what we would call traditional hymns have very pretty complex harmonic language, which makes them interesting, and uh, um, in, 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 from, from a certain perspective, more complex melodic language. I mean, it's not just one, one pitch being repeated over and over and over again. There's there's a shape to the melody. Rhythmically, though, they're very simple. Right? You look at you look at the rhythm of a typical hymn. It's, it's pretty much on the pulse. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That, that's rhythmically very simple. Harmonically very complex, if you were to analyze the, the, the harmonies, the harmonic progressions. Melodically not super complex, but also not boringly simple those those are some of the marks of of traditional hymnody uh the familiar i i put all people that know what you'd also 100 but this is the familiar tune to uh the doxology <nin> <voluntary> <arms> da, 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 da 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 rhythmically very very straightforward very very simple a nice shape to the melody. It's not not too complex, but also not static. Harmonically, very, very rich. Very, very interesting. I mean, you, you can go through many, many examples of this. Amazing Grace, same thing. A lot of, a lot of um, uh, the, the very simple rhythm, rich harmonic language, nice shape to the melody, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, et cetera. Okay? So, so in other words, a, a, a traditional hymnody, very rich in its textual, theological language, rich harmonically, nice melodies that are not too complex but, but have a nice shape to them. And here's the key, rhythmically, very simple. The problem is, the problem is with modern pop music is everything is reversed. Melodically static Harmonically very, very simplistic. Which makes if you just take those two out and and textually, usually, although there's some some exceptions to this, especially lately with some of the some of the, some modern worship songs, textually, pretty simplistic. Okay, you take those in and of themselves, really, really boring. So the way that modern pop music and modern worship music, the way that they add interest is with rhythmic complexity. Here's the problem. Rhythmic complexity is very, very difficult for a congregation to sing. Harmonic complexity is not difficult for a, for an average congregation to sing because most of the congregation is just singing the melody. And if you happen to know music, you can sing, you can sing a harmony part, but you don't have to. The harmony is there, and it's very rich in traditional hymnody, in some cases very complex, but the average congregant is singing a nice melody and just enjoying the, the existence of the harmony. But with complex rhythms, it creates a lot of interest. Complex rhythm is very, very interesting and very, very hard to sing, especially for a, for a group of people. If you're a trained musician, you can sing rhythmically complex stuff if you've, if you've practiced and and you've got the music and you can you learn it. But if you're not a trained musician, rhythmic complexity is very very difficult. Let me let me show you some examples of some modern worship songs. So he, here's the pulse of the music. Okay. So in in a traditional hymn, the the rhythm is pretty much going to sit on the pulse because that's easy to keep a congregation together. Holy, 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 right? Pretty simple, simple rhythm. Here's this song. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. da 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 da, da. Kind of repeats that 27, 27 times. So the melody itself and the lyrics... Repeat over and over and over again, boring. But it's actually a really interesting song, not because of the melody, not because of the lyrics, not because of the harmony, the harmonic progression. Basically three chords repeated over and over and over again in their root position, if you know anything about music. Rhythmically, really interesting, but but hard for a congregation to sing. I mean, you try to get a congregation to sing this, especially if they don't know it, and it, it sounds awful. Now, if you know it, maybe you heard it on the radio, you can kind of sing along. But you, you really need, like if I were to say, okay, let's okay, it's up there. Let's sing it together. Ready? I'm not going to do that because it would be like a train wreck. <laughs> now, if you've got a band up here who's practiced it, they can do it, and they can be perfectly together, and it can sound pretty cool, but, but the people aren't really going to sing. Maybe they'll sing along. That's what I mean by the difference between congregational singing and congregational sing-along. Okay, um, here's another example. Uh, so the pulse is, Lord of all creation. It's, it's all off the beat, which is, which is interesting. It's pretty complex. Rhythmically, contemporary pop music and contemporary worship music is, is pretty complex rhythmically. But the problem is it's really difficult. I mean, this is the perfect example. This, I think the entirety of this song, nothing is on the pulse. Everything is off the beat. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. I mean, it's just, and I mean, look at, and, and melodically not interesting, harmonically not interesting, and all off the beat, which is, which is interesting, but impossible for a congregation to sing together. A band can do it, that's, that's practiced. Congregation can't do it. So the, the, the point is, simple textually, melodically, and ha- harmonically is not actually the best way to encourage congregational singing because if, if, if simplicity is your goal in text, melody, and harmony, then it's not going to be interesting unless you add really complex rhythm and then it's not singable. Here's what I think is the better solution. The better solution is instead of simplicity, let's say singable. We want want songs that are singable. And there's there's objective factors that make something singable. I've hinted at them already. I'm going to make them explicit here in a moment. Singable uh, from an an objective point of view, what we sing, you're not going to sing, you know, Handel's Messiah congregationally. That's That's not singable. Right So this is not just a contemporary pop versus traditional kind of thing. I mean, you're not gonna sing art music as a congregation it's not it's not singable for for the average the average person. Singable is the key, but singable plus rich i mean rich textually rich melodically and rich harmonically. The singable nature has to do with the rhythm largely. And, and and a couple other factors. That's that's going to be more of a of of a of characteristics of songs that are going to be both accessible for a congregation and interesting to sing. I mean you again, you can you can you can choose things that are singable, but if there's not if there's no richness to it, it's going to be boring. I don't want to sing that because it's it's just not interesting, textually, melodically, harmonically, etc. Let me give you let me give you some uh, some some we'll flesh this out a little bit. There's a an article in a larger book called "Looking at Hymn Tunes: The Objective Factors," and this is by uh, John Wilson, who, who who did a similar sort of thing to my colleague at Southwestern, where he looked at the most successful traditional hymns what has made them successful because i mean you, again this is not a, a new versus old thing because there's a lot of old songs that have been written that were just not very good and you know what they didn't last <laughs> they, they didn't make it into subsequent hymnals and this sort of thing because they they weren't very good what has lasted over time what has stood the test of time are things that were singable and rich And so uh, a guy like John Wilson then says, okay, what makes them singable and what makes them rich? So here's what he says. He says, we must remember first that singing is not just an affair of the voice. It is just as much, if not more, an affair of the mind. A good voice and plenty of breath are fine things to have. But if you cannot imagine in your mind's ear the pitch of the next note in a tune, you can't sing it. And in matters of rhythm, if you cannot visualize the length of a note, you will not know when to stop singing it, and may, which may be just as awkward, right? So, so his point here is we, we've got to choose musical characteristics that the average person's mind, untrained musically, not practiced, can, can sort of instinctively visualize, such that after maybe hearing it one time or a couple times, you can catch on. So what are some of those factors? So here, here, are, here are attributes of a, of, a, of, a, of a good hymn tune. These are things that Wilson points out. Number one, uh, I, think, I think I'm going um, to work through these each in turn. I'm going to lay them out here first. Yeah. So, so here, here's kind of an outline of where we're going where, where to go. And I'm going to talk about each of these. It's melodic outline. Okay, so what, what about a melody makes it singable? And rich. What about the rhythm? So I've hinted at some of these a little bit. What about the harmony? And what about the the overall structure? So here's what he says. He says, the melody, so now we're talking about melody, will have a judicious mixture of leaps and steps. So in other words, it's not just going to be all one note or even just na na you know, just steps, but neither is it going to be, you know, that's not going to be singable either, right? It's going to have a good balance between stepwise motion, and this is something you can just—I mean, you don't even have to have to read music. You can just look at the melody, and you can kind of see this. There's a nice shape to the melody. It's singable, but it also has some interest to it. It's also a, a, a rich melody. Uh, the melody will maintain its. Poise as it moves, balancing rise and fall without spending too much in the heights or too much in the depths. A lot of pop music, again, a lot of pop pop music is not designed to be congregational. It's designed for some guy with a really good voice to be able to sing. So often the, the range is really, really wide. Like, it'll be really, really low for a while, and then it'll be really, really screaming. And if you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a well-trained singer, you can do that. The average person can't do that. So a good melody is not going to sit down here in the groveling low notes. It's not going to sit up here in the screaming high notes. It's going to maintain a good balance. That's, that's what he's, he's pointing out in terms of, of where the melody lies. Number three, a melody will respect congregational limits in matters of pitch and vocal climax. It's not going to be screaming. It's not going to be, uh, you know, it, it might have a couple high notes, but it's not going to stay up there. It's not going to, it, we're, we're going to respect congregational limits, and I'll, I'll show some of, some of those here in a moment. It's going to have fairly straightforward rhythms in the melody. I've already talked about this. You can't, you can't have complex rhythm and, and make it be something that people are going to sing well. People are going to give up. They're just going to listen, or maybe they'll kind of mumble along. Or again, if you know it, like you heard it on the radio or something, then yeah, maybe you can sing it along. But still, I mean, I, I've, I've experienced this. There are, there are cases where I've been in a, in a service, and there's a song being performed by a band, and I've never heard it before. And I'm a musician. Like, I know how to read music, and I can't even figure out what's going on. I can't even... You know, saying maybe if I heard it four or five times, I might be able to figure it out. Uh, Just recently, I was with another another guy who's a musician, and we were commenting, we were listening, we, we were there in the service, and we couldn't even figure out what the melody was, let alone be able to follow it. That that prevents congregational singing. If our goal is for the for us to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we've got to we've got to make sure it's singable. And one of the ways is it's with very simple melody. If you want something simple, it's got to be uh, excuse me, very simple rhythm. The rhythm has to be simple and straightforward. And even melodically, there's value to some repetition in the in the melody, such that we we can we can hear uh, a, a phrase of music, and we kind of have it in our ear. And then we get to do it again. Okay, that that makes it makes it singable. Uh, here are a couple examples. Like uh, if you know the the hymn, "This is my father's world." That's, that's pretty small, but but listen to this. This is my father's world. Now, what the what the tune writer did is he takes that phrase and he just puts it up one step. Da 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 da. Right. That's that's very intuitive. If you've never heard that, after maybe one time of hearing it, you can you can pick that up fairly fairly quickly. And did you notice even the rhythmic simplicity and repetition? We have da 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 da. Let's do it again. Da 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 da. Very simple. You can catch on. Now, if I just did that, da 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 da. That's boring. What makes it interesting is the harmony is the shape of the melody and the richness of the lyrics. That's where the interest lies. You can't, you can't put the interest in the rhythm because interesting rhythm is inherently unsingable for average people. Uh, great is thy faithfulness has some very, very rich harmonic language. I mean, you know, look at if, if the, the, the refrain to great is thy faithfulness. Ba, da, 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 da. let's do that same thing a step up da 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 da, 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 da. Right, there's there's that melodic repetition it's not exactly the same thing over and over again it does move it up a step but it, but it but it's easy it's predictable this goes back to wilson's point that the mind has to be able to sort of intuitively predict what's coming next that's what makes a good hymn tune that's what makes something singable I, I know I kind of know what's coming. I, I I intuit what's coming what's coming next. And there are even th- this is a this is a hymn that was written just um, 2001. So there are some modern hymns. This is, again, this is not an old versus new things. There are hymns being written in in the 21st century uh, that that but that that still follow these same sort of characteristics. Uh there was there was a um James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor of uh, uh Tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. He passed away of cancer. But he and his uh church musician uh Paul Jones uh collaborated on a number of hymns. They're called they they collected them in a little uh collection of hymns called Hymns for a Modern Reformation. They're fresh, the language is 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 modern, but they're rich theologically. Even the harmonic language. If you hear them, you you can say, okay, this this sounds like something newer, but it still has has the same qualities and characteristics of traditional hymns that make them singable and also interesting to sing. So melodic repetition, structural repetition. Again, if you have if you have some uh, some repetition of, of of phrases within the music that makes it singable. This is somebody I, uh, the other day asked me about Luther and bar tunes. Have you ever, ever heard that? Like Luther used bar tunes, right? And, and sometimes you'll hear people say that, and you know, that, you know Luther used music from the bars, and so we should too. Well, it is true that Luther used bar tunes but it has nothing to do with the tavern. German bar form was a a structural form of German folk music that Luther employed when he wrote his hymns because it was easy to sing. Luther used German bar form. It had nothing to do with, you know, with, with the tavern. Well, German bar form, what makes it so singable, this was characteristic of German folk music, what makes it so singable is that you have a phrase of music and you repeat that same phrase of music again and then you have a contrasting phrase of music. And that makes it very singable. It makes it predictable. Once you hear the first line, okay, I can do that again. Here's an example. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise. Let's do that again. That spread the flowing seas abroad. And Then we'll change it up a little bit at the end, right? You know that that's that's very similar to German bar form. Structural repetition in in the in the music. And then the third line is contrasting. Now let's go back to the first one line again. You see that structural repetition? That's always going to be much easier to sing than if every line is absolutely different and contrasting musically. You see that, right? Uh, that's that's a perfect example. And folk folk tunes are 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 inherently like this a lot of our best hymn tunes were originally folk tunes because it's just it's just the music of the people it's easy to sing but the melodies are beautiful and the harmonic language is rich and interesting but it's e- but it's easy to sing this a uh, forest green is an old english Folk tune. I don't know if you know it. Uh, Let's do that again. And there's a contrasting line. Now let's repeat the first line. But just because of the shape of the melody and in particular the richness of the harmony. That's not boring. It's easy to sing. It is singable, but it is also rich. And we could go on and on. Uh, This this is one of my favorite hymn tunes, uh, Redhead, uh, set to a a setting of Psalm 51. But the same kind of idea, in this case, the first line and the last line are um, almost exactly the same melodic material, and then there's a different line in between. Again, that structural repetition uh, makes it singable, but the beauty of the melody, the richness of the harmony makes it, makes it interesting and enjoyable to sing. And we could, we, could, we could use more examples of that. So straightforward rhythm. If there's rhythmic complexity, it's, you're not going to be able to get people to sing unless you've got a professional band up front. And then it's sacerdotalism. They're doing it and you're just kind of singing around, singing along. If you want people to actually be engaged in the singing, you've got to choose things that have fairly straightforward rhythms in the melody, some melodic repetition, some structural repetition, and then melodic range. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, if you know anything about music, and this is where you can maybe rely on uh, some musicians within your congregation, you really don't want to go much beyond an octave and a third. How long is this chord? Let's see here. Can I make it to the piano? I think I can. Okay, so an octave is, is eight pitches. That's an octave, right? It's the same pitch, just an octave apart. You, for a range of a song, you don't want to get much beyond that, maybe an octave and a third. If you get too much beyond that, the average singer can't do that. Now, a trained singer can sing much a much wider range than an octave and a third. A trained singer can do that. But the average singer in your congregation can't. The average voice for an untrained uh, singer, which is going to be most of the people in our congregations, is about an octave and a third. And this is exactly what, again, John Wilson uh, points out in, in in his article. Okay, so these are the characteristics of what makes something singable. Right? So remember, my formula is singable plus rich. Singable melody, a, a singable hymn will have a straightforward rhythms, melodic repetition, structural repetition, and a melodic range, not much more than an octave and a third. So what makes it rich then? What makes a song rich? Number one, lyrics with profound theology. So if you, ha- if you have something that's singable but the lyrics are not profound, well, then it's probably not going to be worth singing. It's not going to be very interesting. It's not going to be engaging. Lyrics with poetic depth. Okay, so again, I've talked about this a couple times. We're not looking for just theological propositions that happen to rhyme kind of set to music. That's, That's not going to be, that's not the point. The poetic depth is what adds some interest and captures the imagination. And again, scripture is our model here. Interesting melody that uses both steps and leaps. I talked about that a moment ago. You don't want something that's just static, and you don't want something leaping all over the place. You want a nice shape to the melody that's beautiful. Again, this is very characteristic of folk melodies uh, throughout history in various folk cultures. Interesting melodies that, that uses both steps and leaps. And then interesting harmony, and this is what my... My colleague at Southwestern has shown when he, when he analyzes the harmonic language of traditional hymnody, the top 50 traditional hymns and the top uh, contemporary hymns, the harmonic language of traditional hymns is very, very rich, very, very complex, which, again, doesn't, doesn't influence the singability of it, but adds a whole lot of interest and beauty and richness to the, to the hymn, whereas contemporary songs are very simplistic harmonically. Uh, maybe three chords. Sometimes a song will just repeat the same three chords over and over again, over again right? In order, and this, again, this is this is this is very standard with pop music. But a good song that is singable and also rich will have interesting harmony that supports the melody. Okay, so this is the first consideration. If we want to think through how we're gonna, how are we gonna how are we gonna help our congregation to sing, you've gotta you've gotta choose songs that are singable from an objective standpoint and rich textually and musically. You know, sometimes I I hear people say, you know what, older hymns are hard to sing, newer contemporary worship songs are easier. Objectively, from an objective musical analysis, that is absolutely not true. I think what they mean is, I know this because I hear it on the radio, so it's easier to sing, I don't know that, it's more foreign to me, so it's harder to sing. Or that takes more work to sing. Well, that's true, because it's actually got some depth to it. This is more immediately gratifying. Okay, that's true, because it's going straight for the passions. But if you want to actually speak in terms of objective analysis... Traditional hymns, again, it's not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not meaning to say old versus new because there are some new things being written that I would consider traditional hymns. And there are, by the way, some old things that, that don't work, that don't fit this mold. But traditional hymns are objectively, from a musical analysis standpoint, more singable because they have straightforward rhythms, they have a, a decent range of, of pitch, and uh and and you know a a balance between stepwise motion and sk- and skips and that sort of thing they are objectively more singable and objectively more uh interesting and rich than than a lot of uh contemporary songs because those are some musical factors what about some other things to help the congregation sing let's talk about instrumentation what can you do with, with, with instrumentally to help people sing well Again, if if your goal is just to create energy in the service, well, then you're probably going to use certain in, instruments that are just that. You're probably going to have pretty pretty lo- loud volume, right? Because because just the acoustical principles of the high decibels creates vibrations in the body that we we, we sort of enjoy. It makes us feel good, right? When I, I was I was at a Um, a concert once uh, and there was all kinds of different music but this one pianist had like a track that accompanied what he was playing and it was so loud I thought my heart was going to like come out of my chest I mean it was the vibrations were you know so I could you know I could feel that right Uh, but is that going to really encourage singing right right it's energetic. It creates a lot of energy and passion and excitement, but it it does not encourage singing. Instrumentally, we ought to choose instruments and the way those instruments are performed that will sustain and support the singing of the congregation. I mean, this is why organ traditionally was such a successful accompaniment instrument for congregational singing. Because when you play an organ... When you put your fingers down on those keys, the, the the pitches just sustain. It's a it's a it's a regular sustained pitch, so it, it very easily supports the singing of the congregation. Uh, piano is almost as good. The difficulty with the piano is once you hit that key, the pitch bong and then immediately dies away. So you have to you have to do a little more to sustain the underlying support, but you can do it pretty successfully other instruments I mean you you probably couldn't support singing with a flute really well. Now that might be a supplemental instrument, but just a flute alone would be would be pretty hard. These are considerations you have to give. What what instruments so this might might differ depending on the size of your congregation, depending on other factors that we're going to talk about here in a moment. But what instruments are going to best support the congregation's singing? And and also the benefit of an instrument like a piano and an organ is they can play the harmonies of the hymn, even if the entire congregation is just singing the melody, the harmony is still there. Whereas a a wind instrument or something like a a, a string instrument, a solo instrument can only play one line, or maybe a string instrument can play more than one pitch at a time, but it's, it's a little more difficult. So instrumentation, volume—we already talked about tempo, right? You don't want to sing too slowly to where I'm having to breathe every two words, but at the same time, I don't want to sing too quickly to where I'm trying to catch my breath. I had a I had a music director once. He would he wouldn't breathe even between stanzas. I mean, it's like. Blessed Trinity. Oh, that's a that's bad that example. I mean, you know, because that that one you can at least hold hold the pitch at the end and you can breathe. But some some hymns. I'm trying to think of a real quick example here where it ends like on a quick quick pitch and you just got to keep going and there's not not even any chance to, to breathe or anything. And, and you got to you got to give people a chance to breathe, right? In other words, tempo. You can't go too fast. Can't go too slow. You got to consider consider breathing. Again, the purpose of tempo is not to create excitement. Let's go really fast so we can create excitement. no you want to, you want to give people the the opportunity to breathe the opportunity to uh, but, um, but not have to breathe too much. Uh, the leader is singing i mean the the, the the leader of the congregation was really helpful, and again, this is not maybe a possible in a lot of a lot of situations, but if you can find somebody who has a decent voice who can sing on pitch. That's that's the kind of person who's really helpful to lead because at least then people have something that they can hear another voice that can help to support what's going on, uh, and and you know, um, in in a lot of contemporary worship, what you you have you have people up there leading who have really really good voices. The problem is they're just like riffing all over the place. They're singing everything but the melody, you know, and they're very talented. Uh, you know, not anybody can do that. But if you're, you know, so if you're singing a solo, that's one thing. I mean, it'd be, it'd be the same with, you know, and this is, I'm not just, just picking a contemporary. I, you know, there might be a great operatic singer who might not be the best to help to lead congregational singing if that operate, you know, if, if they're just, their voice is going everywhere but the melody of the song. The person leading should sing strongly and should sing the melody in order that people can follow along. Uh, the, the, the acoustics of the room in which you sing is, uh, is a consideration if if you have if you can do something about it. Sometimes you're meeting in a place there's nothing you can do about it. You just you just work with what you have. But if at all you can you can uh, do things with the acoustics of the room so that people can hear themselves and people around them. That's going to encourage congregational singing. In some acoustical environments, you're singing. And all you hear is yourself because the sound is just dead. Well, you know, for the average person who's already a little skeptical about singing, you know, you're going to kind of just, the minute, the minute that happens, you're going to be quiet. If you can add a little bit of a, of acoustic liveness to a room so that the the sound moves around a little bit and you can start to hear other people singing, that's just going to encourage Uh, congregational singing even more. Now, there's got to be a balance because if you make a room really, really live, it's hard to understand the spoken word. The best best rooms for the spoken word are rooms that are completely acoustically dead and you would just amplify the sound. Okay, that's great for spoken word. It's awful for congregational singing. So you have to find a balance in, in, in terms of the acoustics where you can understand the spoken word, but also you can hear people around you when you sing. Lighting. I talked about this yesterday with the return to Rome session. It is very common in a lot of churches today, during, especially during the congregational singing. Like the stage is really, really, really bright, and the room is like pitch black. Well, how does that help congregational singing? This is supposed to be singing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I, I was just at a conference recently, and it was it was hilarious, uh, and it was at like a co- a convention center. And the people kind of running the lights. I don't even think were Christians. They'd like been hired out, but they just assumed, oh, this this is supposed to be like a concert. So the stage was really really bright, and the congregation was really really long. Well, the guy leading the hymns gets up there and he's like, I can't see anybody. Turn the lights up, you know. And he was like, and it took like a while. They didn't. I, they apparently didn't know how to turn the lights up. But he's like, turn the lights up. These people are not going to sing if they can't see. If I can't see them, and they can't see one another. So. So if you're, in that, if you're in that kind of situation or been tempted to turn the lights down, turn the lights up. Okay, uh, one more thing quickly. I've got a lot here, but I'm not going to go through all of it just for sake of time because I want to I answer some questions. I think we're, yeah, 4.30, good. Um, where you place the songs in the service I think is also really, really important. Because of what we talked about last session, first with revivalism and then later on with the influence of Pentecostalism, we've developed an idea that the purpose of music is just to sort of create energy in the service. You might have heard this language, the purpose of the singing is to prepare the heart for the message. That's not right either. Because it's still the same problem. The purpose of the music is to create a mood. The purpose of music is just to create a sort of atmosphere that prepares for the preaching. That's very much in the sort of revivalist tradition. We want to create energy that will prepare for the sermon, and the climax of the service is the come-forward invitation when we compel people to come down. That's that's the influence of Finnean revivalism. Traditionally, hymns were chosen, congregational songs were chosen, and they were placed in the service... Based on how their content fit the order and progression of the service, so in other words, today we kind of typically have kind of a a set of music and then the sermon and then and then stuff after you know we have the preliminaries or the music portion of the service, and then maybe the sermon and then maybe something else that's traditionally that's not how Christians did it singing singing was all throughout the service. You sang from the beginning of the service to the end of the service with, yes, the sermon is a central point there in the middle, but they're singing all throughout the service and the songs are chosen based on how they fit the the theological progression of the service. And why this helps congregational singing is because it helps people to know why I'm singing what I'm singing so 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 Alan beautifully painted this in several of his sessions over this week, and this is one of the the great uh benefits of his book as well. If we recognize that what we're doing in corporate worship is is a reenactment and renewal of the how did he put it? The covenant, the, the 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 covenantal relationship that we have with the Lord, the, the the communion, the fellowship that we have with God through Christ. Our our corporate worship is a weekly reenactment of that relationship through Christ. In other words, it's a reenactment of the gospel. Traditional worship order was a reenactment of the gospel week after week after week such that we're shaped by the gospel in our corporate worship. We, 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 we are reenacting and remembering and memorializing our relationship with God through Christ in what you might call the liturgy, meaning just the order of worship, and songs were chosen that would fit that order. So let me show you this. So here is your typical revivalist liturgy. You've got the song service, with a bunch of songs, you got the the sermon, whoops, and then you got the invitation with a song, right? And what songs are what songs are chosen, you know, in the song service? you know, maybe maybe we, maybe we pick up a, pick a theme, or later in the more uh, in the more praise and worship uh, version of this, we pick them based on mood and the energy that it creates. But traditionally, in what I what I like to call a gospel shaped liturgy, the service looked more like this. Okay, Alan pointed out the, the, the importance of the call to worship. It begins with God as the one who invites us to Him. Then we 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 pray. This I mean uh, Isaiah six. You see this this order in Isaiah six. God called Isaiah up to, to uh, and he he saw I saw the Lord high and lifted up. What happens next? The angels sing, holy, holy, holy. We praise God. What is the next natural reaction? Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When, I, when we see the holiness of God, we recognize our unworthiness to be in his presence. Then the seraph takes the coal off of the altar and places it on Isaiah's lips and says, your sins are atoned for. forgiveness, through the means that God has prescribed, and we praise him for that. Then God speaks to us, which is the sermon. We respond with dedication, commitment to what we have heard from the word of the Lord. And the whole thing, traditional worship, the service climaxed, as Alan pointed out a couple times, with the Lord's table as an expression of the communion that we share with God because of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And the communion that we share with the people of God, the fellowship that we enjoy with God's people because of this. And then God blesses, blesses us and send, sends us out. Traditionally, this is what a worship service looked like. This is what a Christian worship service looked like, from the New Testament all the way up until the point of Finian revivalism. And songs were chosen. I'm mean, going to put it here with question marks. A song could go in any one of these points. Maybe I've got a song that expresses a call to worship or a song that, that is a, a song of praise to the Lord, or or a song that, that acknowledges our sinfulness and need of salvation, or a song that proclaims the gospel and salvation through Christ, or or a song that rejoices in what Christ did for us, or a song following the sermon that, that, that expresses our dedication. You see my point, right? We choose the songs based on what they fit in the content and the flow of this gospel-shaped service. And when we do that, especially when we teach the people, that What we're doing, it is far easier for the people in our congregations to be engaged in singing because they know why we're singing this. We are now at the point of the service. We've just confessed our sins, and now we're rejoicing in the gospel, and let's sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and poor contempt and all my pride. I, I know the reason I'm singing this where we've just had the sermon and now you've chosen a hymn that is a direct reflection and response to the preaching. When, when we when we know why we're singing what we're singing, when we're choosing hymns based on the content and how they fit the flow of the service, it's far easier for our congregation to be to be joyfully engaged in what we're doing rather than just, okay, it's the song time. We're going to kind of sing some songs now. And then comes the sermon, and then come you know, and then comes everything else. No, let's let's choose our songs based on their content and how they fit uh, fit fit the progression of the song. Uh, there are other things I could say. You know, having a really good hymnal with with good uh, with good hymns is, is 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 really really important. And I'll just you know, this is a shameless plug. Uh, a couple of years ago, I edited a new hymnal, Hymns of the Living God. And the reason uh, several of us did this is because there was no one hymnal. You know, every, any hymnal that was out there, there was a bunch of junk in it that I, I never wanted to use. And so we felt like, okay, let's put together a hymnal that includes what we consider the best, most theologically rich and musically singable hymns available in the English language. And that's, that's uh, what we produced in, in hymns to the living God. And, and, and we're, you know we, we, we did it because we felt like it was something that needed to be done. We didn't expect anybody to use it. <laughs> and thankfully there are there are churches who've adopted this hymnal. My own church uses this hymnal and, and it's it's a wonderful resource. And the nice thing about a hymnal as opposed to just throwing songs on a screen is, you know, when, when someone joins our church, we give them a copy of the hymnal. That they can take home, that they can sing at home in their families. And somebody asked earlier, so how you know how what what is a way to maybe help people learn a new song that they don't know? you know, now we have so many resources for that. I, every week I send an email to our congregation of the service for the upcoming, the, 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 the service order for the upcoming Sunday with links to YouTube videos of the hymns. You usually can, almost always, and I, I, I put it in the search thing and, you know, see all kinds of versions of this song. Yeah, that's a, that's a stinky one, whatever. But I can usually find some good versions, some, you know, sometimes just piano or organ playing the hymn, sometimes a whole congregation singing the hymn, and there are, there are resources uh, these days where, where people, they have the hymnal at home, and we, I, I know there are families in my church, they'll look at the order, and then that week, as a family, they'll sing the hymns out of the hymnal that they were given when they were in the church for the upcoming service to make sure that they're familiar with that. That, that helps congregational, congregational singing. There are all sorts of things that you can do. But we, we need to be a people in which we are singing to one another. And, and these are just some of, the, some of the ways, some of the factors that can help us to do that. All right, we've got a couple minutes here. Uh, any practical questions or, or flesh this out a little bit or specific situations you've faced? There are a, a number, number of other things that I could say, but just for the sake of time, maybe I'll just see what you're, what you're thinking.
1: Very practical. Could you make an analysis
0: based on... Singable?
2: And rich Of our country's national anthem
0: Yeah So really rich Not super singable Yeah
1: I know I was kind of wondering If that might be the case
0: Yeah I wish America the Beautiful Were our national anthem That's a far more singable Singable song But yeah No it's not The the national anthem Is very rich Yeah Not super singable
2: Yeah Some of us wish Texas Our Texas Were the (laughs) (laughs) National anthem
3: Nice. <laughs> Dr. Randall, thank you so very much for that presentation. May, may, may I tell a story first before I ask my question? I've been privileged for the last 16 years to help with the nursing home ministry uh, down in Richmond. And uh, one Sunday I was there, and there was a lady I hadn't met before. She was And I went over and introduced myself to her. And uh, I asked her her name, and she looked at me with a very blank face and said, I don't know. And then when, uh, I think it was Dave, maybe it was singing that day, he got up and I think he was doing, did How Great Thou Art. Her face lit up, just totally lit up. And she sang, and she knew every word there. Yeah. And then when I got up to preach, I don't know if she got anything out of that at all, uh, but she worshiped her Lord with How Great Thou Art. Uh, So, I guess really my question comes as we look at the music that we select each Sunday. Does that, are we getting music, kind of like, say, that single that goes with you? So, when you're that day or when I'm that day in the nursing home and I can't remember my name, well, I have music that is embedded deep with me. And I guess if I could say, if I'm in that hall down there, maybe you guys can sing, come sing how great they are amazing grace yeah. or some of the songs like that that no, that's, that's, have their richness to them as right. you say
0: that's a really really good point i a couple of years ago i heard a major major evangelical pastor you know sort of leader of evangelicalism if i said his name you'd all recognize him he's uh you know he's an advocate of contemporary worship and everything but he made the comment he said you know i do wonder sometimes though if in 50 years the Christians in the nursing home are going to have anything to sing, because you can't sing this stuff. Amen. You know, you can't see, and that's really that's really a measure. With this song, can I, if I take away all the instruments, take away the band, take away everything, can I still sing it? You know, some some newer songs you can, but a lot of contemporary songs you just, you cannot do it without the band, and you're not going to be able to do that in the nursing home. It's a, it's a good measure, yeah.
2: Were the uh, hymns and songs of the Bible ever intended to be an aid to memorizing theological principles
0: uh, that 's that's probably one of the one of the benefits for sure I mean something you know i think it was it was Watts who said things learned in song are remembered long you know uh, that 's one of the one of the values of poetry you know there wasn 't rhyme in in the psalms, but there was i guess you know, some somebody once said the the phrases rhyme in Psalms, not the not the lines. You know, with the parallelism. Uh, so yes, I mean, one benefit is the the remembering of of truth. I think there's more to it than that, but that is that is a definite benefit for sure.
2: Just spend a little time with Orthodox Jews, or the Haredim, and they sing yeah. through all of the Psalms and through all of the Scripture. Everything. Well, that's you the say thing. Me. I
0: mean, you know, uh, up until. Maybe the second century you you would never just read scripture you would you would chant scripture, all scripture was meant to be chanted originally, and that's sort of the Jewish practice even to this day. It would be sung um, yeah
3: hi uh we've talked a lot about music, but I would like to hear your comments on instruments uh here we have just a piano what is you know, we're talking about keeping things simple. But what, what do you think about the other instruments that uh, more modern that we're using nowadays in a lot of the churches? Yeah. I like to hear so, comments on that.
0: Um, I would say in- instruments are tools, right? They're tools to be used, and the, the question is, what's our what's our goal? And then how can we use the instrument to accomplish that goal? I think, you know, if our goal is congregational singing, that's going to, in, that's going to influence which instruments we're going, to, we're going to prefer to use and how we're going to use them. Let's put, put it this way. In theory, any instrument can be used to support congregational singing. But uh, with some instruments, we're going to be maybe... You, you, using them in a really limited capacity. I mean, you know, can, can I use a kazoo? <laughs> I'm just using a, a silly example. I think, yes, any instrument can be used, but I'm going to have to be really careful to use it in a way that supports, you know. So, um, so even something like, you know, uh, an acoustic guitar. Uh, actually is v- probably very similar to to what an Old Testament lyre would have been, right, which David played. By the way, David did not play a harp. Harps were not invented yet. He played a lyre. You know the difference between a lyre and a harp, right? A harp tells the truth. No. Um, <laughs> right, a, lyre, a lyre is a trapezoidal shape, but it's a similar kind of thing. It's a plucked string instrument. The problem with a plucked stringed instrument, like an acoustic guitar or a lyre, is that it's a very soft instrument. So it's hard to accompany singing. That's why in the temple they had to have like a couple hundred people playing the lyre because that was the only way to be able to hear it. So so again, there's, if you have a, a, a smaller group of people, a more intimate setting, an acoustic guitar can work. If you have a large congregation, it's going to be a lot harder to do that so that's why then some people might want to plug in an amp. The problem then is when you amplify the sound of an instrument like that, it becomes, becomes distorted. So the whole, my my whole point here is I think in theory anything can be used, but you have to use it in such a way that it is actually supporting the singing, not overpowering the singing. That is a supportive instrument for singing. Which which will mean, and that's, this is what I said earlier when I talked about instruments. Some instruments are just going to lend themselves more easily to that than others. Again, thinking of it as a, like a tool is helpful. It's like it's like if I want to pound a nail in a, in a wall, c- could I use a screwdriver to do that? Yeah, I have, <laughs> right? So, it's the only thing I've got, you know. But it's a little harder to do it when the instrument was not designed, when the tool was not designed to do that which, which which you wanted to do. In theory, I can use a screwdriver, but it's better if I get a hammer. The same the same thing with the instruments that we choose for worship. If all you have is a flute, okay, you probably can do it. If all you have is a kazoo, if all you have is a a guitar, you know, uh, you can probably do it. But if you have some options, let's choose the instruments that are designed, that are best suited to support congregational singing. And that's why I said piano and organ are really I think some of the best because they can sustain singing without overpowering singing and you can play the harmonies even if the whole congregation is just singing the melody which adds that that harmonic interest.
2: I heard that Herman said that he wants us all to come and sing Do Lord to Him if he gets in the nursing home. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, excuse me. Uh, I'm paraphrasing one of the things you said uh, that uh, I liked. It uh, said that the average person in the congregation does not know how to sing the harmony, but enjoys hearing the harmony sung by those who know how to sing. And I want to circle back uh, to what Dr. Ross, I, I think, was saying this morning, that the objective is to focus on God and to worship him. And uh, uh, I find today, uh, I, it seems like to me today, that that singing out of a hymnal to some extent is distracting. And uh, so I, I wonder about whether it is more beneficial to take what's in the hymnal and put them on the screens for many churches. Uh, that, that's one thing I'm wondering about. And uh so anyway I, I guess Did, I'll I'll leave it at that. just a
0: little quick follow up distracting to what?
1: Well, uh I'll take this morning uh two things about singing out of the hymnal. Uh for, by the time we get, by the time I have, I find, I figured out the, that the particular hymnal in one case that I had didn't have the song and the page we were looking for. And on another occasion uh you already we were already singing before I found the page. Yeah. So it's distracting from worshiping. Uh, yeah. Well, that I mean that certainly that...
0: would be a distraction, but that's not the fault of the hymnal. It's, no, it's no. Probably uh, my fault for starting too quickly. No, the, and,
1: yeah. I, and I'm not assigning fault. No, no, no. I, uh, it's I mean, a legitimate I, concern, I, sure. Yeah, I
0: mean, it has to be led well. You know. It's, uh, yeah. uh, you know I, th- I would I, just say, you know, there with, with, see,
1: It just seems to me that it, it's easier, since since we we can we all can. Uh, uh, this statement that you made about the harmony applies to a lot of the different aspects of songs. Yeah. And it, it's easier for the, I think, the average person in the congregation to look up and start singing the song off of a screen than pick up a hymnal and and do that. In fact, it's also easier to follow the person that's leading yeah. the singing. So yeah, you
0: know, there, with, with any with any form of media or, or tool, there, there's pros and cons, there's, there's gain and loss. Uh, are there some things that, that you might gain with putting songs up on a screen? I think, I think there are, there's a valid case to say that there is. I think, for me personally, I think you lose more than you gain when you go from hymnal to screen, though. Uh, for one thing, uh, having the printed music... Has a real value now. There, there are actually some companies that are putting starting to put the full music up on screens, which I think is at least a little better. But a lot of people, uh, you, a lot of people learn how to basically read music just by coming week after week. I mean, my I think my kids probably learned, you know, learned how to read music mainly just because of use, for using using a hymnal. If you if you never saw the actual printed music, I think that would be that would be a detriment. The other thing I heard, I heard someone say there. If, if there's just up on a screen, it can encourage a very individualistic focus, whereas you have to you have to share a hymnal. There's there's a corporate thing happening here with with you know. So I mean I'm not going to make a big deal about that. If if you can't afford hymnals, if you're in the bush of Africa, you know maybe throwing something up on a on a on a, on a you know an overhead projector is going to be the best way to go. But I think there are a lot of really valuable benefits to having hymnals. Again, another one being that you can send them home. Another one being you, you have less flexibility if you don't have a hymnal. I, I was in a I was in a service once where the preacher preached something, and he got to a point and he quoted a couple lines of hymns and he, a couple lines of a hymn, and he said, "Let's sing that." Well, there was no hymnals, and they couldn't find it on the computer, you know. Whereas if we had hymnals, we could say, "Okay." index 47, open it up, let's sing it. You know, so there, in that sense, there's a little more flexibility because I've got the whole body of hymns right there in the pew. So, but again, I'm not going to die on the hill of a hymnal. I just think, that we, I think we would lose more than we gain if we got rid of hymnals and, and went just to screens. Yeah, and let me, let me
2: suggest another, another facet to this. When, when, um, when I went up to Preston City, we, I picked 20 hymns. And we sang them over and 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 over, and over again, till people knew them then they don 't really need the hymnal because they have sung them a lot and What I reflected on in my experience, I went to camp a lot i went to i was at church we didn 't sing as much at church, went to chapel every day, going through seminary but by the time I was through seminary. I knew most hymns by heart, and I always stress the fact that when Ephesians five, uh, nineteen and following, uh, talks about that we are to be singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. If you haven't memorized hymns, you can't do that. You know, you have to know these. If you're driving down the highway and you want to sing something, you go, oh how great thou art, and you get that out, and then you're mm, uh, mm, and then you're humming the melody or something, but that 's a one way to do it is to just pick five or six, sing them until everybody knows them, and add to them from that point on so they become familiar and then they 're not as dependent on always looking at the hymnal and so that that's that 's one thing but i 'm with Scott from looking at the hymns you put up there with the music, you get on the back row you can 't right. see them. So you can't see. And one of the values of a hymnal is it gives the harmony lines. And if people in many churches today singing contemporary have just the words up there, they don't know what the music is. And they don't know how to sing harmony because there's no harmony line. So I'm with Scott. I think you lose a lot by not having a hymnal. You lose more than you gain. Well, Scott, thank you. That was that was tremendous. That really was for those For those of you who listen to some some of the things I've done on this, it's just so much better to have somebody who can sing and play the piano while they're showing the contrast. You know I've tried to pull music off the internet and do this and that to show those comparisons, but you just do it so much better. Um, so we re- really appreciate that. Uh, we're going to break now for dinner. Don't forget uh, for those of you who have uh, displays back there to uh, break them down, and then we will uh, we'll be back here at seven thirty to wrap it up this evening. So look forward to seeing everybody. And once again, thanks to Scott for this.